Well, how do we grow the church? How do we grow the church? That's a question that many church leaders will pour many hours deliberating over. We want the church to grow. We want the church to grow numerically. We want the church to grow spiritually. But true growth is often hard and slow. Many claim to have found the secret recipe to church growth, a certain kind of music perhaps, uh, or a trendy pastor with torn jeans and a leather jacket. Maybe Tim Phillips can try that next week. (laughs) Some professional glossy flyers, a state-of-the-art building maybe on the way. I think we're designing that. The right discipleship program, uh, maybe from some megachurch in Korea. That could, could work. And we think that if we can just find that magic bullet, suddenly our church will be experiencing exponential growth, just like the church down the road. Well, of course, this uh, type of thinking reveals one of the main problems that churches have as they think about church growth, and that is an obsession with numbers and with science. Now, now that's not to say that numerical growth is unimportant. Uh, We do want more people to know Jesus and to enter his kingdom. We need to tell as many as we can. But simply having more people sitting on chairs doesn't necessarily mean that the church is growing. And perhaps that is why people move from church to church to church as they do. Well, how do we really grow the church? Well, thankfully, God has been growing his church in Malaysia over the past 70 years, from just 47,000 in 1948 to now well over 2.5 million. That growth uh, largely owes to the foreign missionaries like OMF who, who came, and then after that to the local leadership that was appointed when they were sent home. But there are threats today to the ongoing growth of the church, not the least uh, the threat of Islamization that we live under. Many of our brothers and sisters from East Malaysia, lacking in a very firm knowledge of God's word, are quite easy targets for that. And I think that just highlights some of the internal threats to church growth that we face in many churches. Firstly, a lack of biblical literacy. Many Malaysians don't know the Bible particularly well. Many Malaysians are attracted to a more practical form of teaching that speaks to their felt needs rather than any serious study of the Bible. And secondly, we have a lack of leaders and especially a lack of pastors. And that problem is being uh, compounded by the migration of so many Malaysians overseas, those who are potential leaders. So how do we go about growing the church? That is our topic this morning. Well, the aim of uh, Paul's great letter to the Ephesians is for them, is for us to grasp, grasp God's great plan to unite all things under the rule of Jesus Christ. And as we come to chapter 4 this morning, we come to a great turning point in the letter. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul has laid out for us in detail all the great blessings that God has given us in Christ. Chapter 1, he said, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's predestined us, he's adopted us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's revealed to us his plan, he's sealed us with his spirit. Chapter 2, he's spoken of God's powerful saving grace, which takes us from death in sin and has made us alive in Christ. 
Now we are seated in the heavenly realms. We've been recreated to serve God. The second half of chapter 2, we've seen how that saving grace not only unites us to Christ, but unites us to one another. It has knocked down every barrier that divides us as it draws all people, Jew and Gentile alike, into one church, one family, one body. And in chapter 3, we've seen how Paul's glorious ministry was to proclaim Christ to the nations And he prayed that we might have power to grasp God's love so that every time we gather, we are a demonstration of God's wisdom to the spiritual beings. Well, that's chapters 1 to 3. But in chapter 4, he comes now to our response to the gospel. And we're at point 1. Ministry is part of our response to the gospel. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you notice that word, therefore? How we live as Christians flows out of what God has already done for us in Christ. Christian ethics is never a, simply a set of rules that we are to follow. Uh, That's what we call legalism, and it leads either to pride if you succeed or despair if you fail. Now, Christian ethics is always gospel-centered, a response to the gospel. Real change is driven by grace and not by guilt. And, And so there is a right way to respond to the grace of God and all of the blessings that we have received in Christ. There is a particular walk. There is a particular manner of life that we are to live in. Now, notice we've all received this calling. It's not just people in full-time ministry. It is every single Christian. Uh, Because in the Bible, being called is not really about being a God-given vocation, like being a doctor or a minister. It's about living out our new identity in Christ. And so we've all been called to belong to Jesus. We've all been called to to be a part of his family. We've all been called to be his church. We've all been called to follow Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And that means we are to live differently. We are to live out a new identity. We are to be who we are. And in chapters 4 to 6, the second half of the book, Paul is now going to flesh out in detail for us what this response to the gospel looks like. We are to respond in our character. We are to respond in how we treat one another. We are to respond in how we live amongst the non-Christian world. We are to respond in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in a world full of evil spiritual powers. We are called to respond, to, to live differently because of our response to the gospel. We are to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Now, in the rest of today's passage, we see uh, that Paul focuses on what that looks like corporately for the church. We are to be one united body working together to grow to maturity. Well, let's begin. Ministry is founded upon the fundamental conviction that we are one family in Christ. Look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, unity, we see here, is not something that we need to create as Christians. We've already seen in chapter 2 that through the cross, we've already been reconciled to God and one another. We're, we're already united in Christ. And Paul summarizes that in verse 4 for us. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. He's saying, if, if we are Christians, we're already united. We, we pray to the same Heavenly Father. We live for the same Lord Jesus. We're sealed with the same Holy Spirit. We've got this, we believe the same gospel. We have the same hope for eternity. And Paul uses that word one, you notice, seven times. Seven, the number of perfection. The first step to living as God's united people is to realize we've already been perfectly united through the gospel. And so verse 3, we are to make every effort, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying we need to put in some serious hard work. This is not going to be automatic. It's going to take some effort from everyone. I think it's sad to, to find that subtle forms of racism and, and, and alike can still be found among Christians, even sometimes here at SMAC. Uh, we do need to work hard to love one another across races. There are foreigners in Malaysia, but they're not foreigners in the church. Our, our unity in the gospel is to trump every other distinction that we have, whether race, social status, education, denomination, music preference, personality, or whatever else it may be. Selfish desires, personal agendas, playing favorites, all these things create havoc in a church and they destroy the unity that we have. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think that means we won't gossip or complain when something happens that we don't like. And we won't avoid or ignore people who've upset us. We'll work hard at living in peace. And to do that, we'll need all those qualities there in verse 2. Humility. We'll consider the needs of others more important than ourselves. Patience. We'll, we'll take care not to speak harshly or rudely to one another. Sorry, that was gentleness, yeah? Gentleness will take care not to speak harshly or rudely with one another. Patience uh, will give people time to grow and to change. And will bear with one another in love. We'll be quick to overlook minor faults without being angry. We'll assume the best of others and not the worst. Well, how are we going at maintaining our unity as a congregation this morning? I wonder, are there some here in SMAC with whom you are in conflict or that you just prefer not to associate with? Well, here's an encouragement this morning for us to work it out, to reconcile with those people, to do what needs to be done to become united again. Let me encourage you to work it out. And more than that, 
to, to grow the unity that we have across races, to, to talk to people different to ourselves. That, that's the starting point for ministry. Ministry is founded upon this fundamental conviction that we are one family in Christ, that we, that we belong together, that we have a responsibility to one another, that we are to be united in love. Ministry is part of our response to the gospel. Well, secondly, we see ministry begins with the teaching of God's word. And in verses 7 to 10, we note that the risen Jesus, risen Jesus Christ has given gifts to his church. Look at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, the quotation is from Psalm 68, the Old Testament reading, where God is pictured like a victorious king returning from battle with uh, prisoners of war behind him. And verses 9 and 10 make it very clear that this psalm is fulfilled by Christ. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? That he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven to earth to defeat the forces of evil at the cross. And Jesus is the one who then ascends back to heaven as king, who's bringing gifts to his people. Christ is this one who fills all things, and that means that he's, he's bringing everything under his rule, beginning with the church. Now, we need to note something here that is uh, very important. The gifts that Paul has in mind here are not skills, but people. Now, if you look very closely you'll notice that Paul actually changes the original quotation from the psalm. You'll need to turn back to the Old Testament, Psalm 68, to see this. Look back at Psalm 68, verse 18. Psalm 68, verse 18. It's not on the screen. You'll have to look it up yourself. It's on page 578. Let me read it for us. It says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. Now in Ephesians 4 verse 8, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this is not Paul kind of misquoting the Old Testament. Sometimes people think that the apostles just changed the Bible however they like. Now what Paul is doing for us here is drawing out the meaning and the application of the psalm. We've already come to see that Jesus is this victorious king. And now we are to understand that we Christians are first the captives who then become the gifts. We are those who have been rescued from Satan's grasp and brought under his rule that we may serve him. He received gifts from men. But having been rescued... Each one of us is now given grace so that we ourselves may be given back to the church as gifts. He gave gifts to men. In other words, we are now to think of ourselves, now that we have been saved, as gifts to one another. 
We are to so act and serve, enabled by the grace of God, that we live as God's gift to each other, that we are used by God to serve the church. You see in verse 7, we've all been given grace. Every one of us has a unique and important part to play in building up God's church. But in verse 11, Paul wants to focus in on one particular group of people he has gifted to his church. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building the body of Christ. So here we see that God gifts his church with people who are able to teach his words. Now, ministry begins with the teaching of God's words. Notice the four groups mentioned here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. They're actually one group. Now, of course, there's no modern-day apostles. Acts 1 tells us that the qualification for being apostle is that you witness the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, None of us fits that category, I'm afraid. And so if someone calls themselves a modern-day apostle... They're a false teacher and you shouldn't listen to them. Well, secondly, Paul mentions prophets. Uh, Prophets are those who speak God's word to his people. Uh, Most likely it's talking of the New Testament prophets who preached before the New Testament was completed. And uh, many would argue we don't have those either. Thirdly, we have evangelists, those particularly gifted in proclaiming the gospel. And fourthly, pastor teachers, those who shepherd and care for God's people by teaching them his word. In other words, God gifts his people, God gifts his church with people who are able to teach his word. Now have a look again carefully at verse 11, and I want you to tell me, who does the work of ministry? Who does the work of ministry? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the ministry? The saints. See, ministry is not what the minister does, or the elders and deacons, if you're from that group. Ministry is what the saints do. And chapter 1, verse 1 tells you who the saints are. They are the church. They're those faithful in Christ Jesus, his people. Now, we need to remember here that the word ministry, it sounds fancy, but it just means service. Right? Ministry is not a career path for a select few who can't get another job. <laughs> ministry is a way of life to which all Christians are called. We are all called to ministry. So you must understand that my job is not to do the ministry in this church. I'm called a minister, but that's not my job. My job is to get you to do ministry, do you see? (laughs) Now, of course, I must do ministry to achieve that. But if the church is to grow, we must all recognize that we all have an important part to play in building God's church. God graciously has given gifts to each one of us, and he's given us those who can teach his word as gifts to equip and enable us in our own ministry. So that means if you're a pastor, 
or an intern or a growth group leader or youth group leader or a Sunday school teacher, if we have been entrusted the task of, of shepherding God's people through teaching His Word, then we must always remember that our job is to equip those under, under us whom we serve. We never do ministry alone. We consciously and we intentionally train others to do ministry and we do that by teaching the Word of God. And so how is the church to grow? If our church is to grow, we need more people with Word ministry gifts who are committed to equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Many of you will know that for at least three years now we've wanted to plant a new congregation out of Smack One, probably near Sunway. But so far we've been held back, not by a lack of people, there's plenty of people here today, but by a lack of pastors and leaders who can lead the new congregation. Please pray God will raise up such people. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And if we have the gifts, particularly if we've been asked by one of the pastoral team to consider full-time ministry, then you should seriously consider leaving your job and using those gifts for the building of his church. Because the church won't grow without them. Ministry begins with the teaching of God's Word. We need a whole new generation of people who will use their gifts in this way and so be the catalyst for all of us to use our various gifts to build up the church. Ministry begins with the teaching of God's Word. Well, what is the goal of ministry? We're at point three. Ministry's goal is to build the church to maturity. We see that in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I like the image here. It's like that of a bodybuilder. You know, there's a strong men flexing all their muscles, right? Got a perfect example in front of you, right? <laughs> In verses 13 and 14, we see what, we are, what we're aiming for, what we're building towards. And the first sign of a strong church is unity in the faith. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Sometimes in our striving for unity, we are tempted to sideline the truth. Some will seek a kind of organizational kind of unity, as if, if we all just belong to the same denomination, then that means we're united. And, and, but that kind of quest for an organizational unity is nearly always at the expense of the truth. Or sometimes people will seek unity by just gathering together people that are like them and then excluding anyone who's not like them. That's not real, real unity either. What we see here is that true unity is unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, it is a unity in the gospel. It's a unity that flows from a common conviction of the truth and a common commitment 
to that truth. And so the word-based gifts, as, as the word is taught, it creates or strengthens the unity of the church as we know Christ and his gospel better. Unity is the first sign. Secondly, the goal of a strong church is maturity. We see it in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God wants his church to be mature. No longer be children. He wants us to be men. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be like Jesus. God wants us to know Christ in, in all his fullness, that his, his rule will be perfectly expressed over every part of our lives so that we are, as the church, we are truly transformed to be his body like him in every way. Uh, and this means that we will live out the truths that will be fleshed out in the following chapters. We'll put off the old self with its sinful desires. We'll put on the new self which is being made in the likeness of God. We won't lie, but we'll tell the truth. We won't steal, but we'll be generous. We won't get angry or bitter, but we'll forgive other people. We'll walk in love. We'll get rid of sexual immorality. We won't get drunk. We'll be filled with the Spirit. We'll give thanks in every circumstance. Our marriages, our parenting, our work will, will all be shaped and governed by the gospel of Christ. That's what a mature church is going to look like. Now, sometimes people speak against serious Bible study as if it is just head knowledge, that, that it just puffs up people with pride. Now, of course, knowledge can do that if we're not very careful. But it is as we grow in the knowledge of Christ that our lives are going to be transformed to be like him. We must know how God wants us to live before we can live it out. So God wants maturity in Christ. He, he wants us to grow together. Not just some of us. All of us. And so we should never be satisfied where we're, with where we are at in the Christian life, whether in our knowledge or in our character. We must never be satisfied with the growth of others. We must all continue to grow we need unity. We need maturity. And thirdly, the third mark of a strong church is stability. See it in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the church that is mature, the church that is united in the truth, will be marked by this stability. That we will know the truth and we will stand firm in the truth. We, we won't be just tossed to and fro by every teaching that comes, you know, following the latest fad, copying the latest megachurch. We won't be gullible. We won't, uh, we won't fall for every false teacher who comes into town holding a big rally at some stadium. Now, sadly, in KL, we often see massive amounts of transfer growth. People will move from one church to the next, attracted by the hype of the new church. And they will join that church without discerning 
what is the what is the truth that is being taught there but the person who is mature knows the truth they live out the truth and they won't fall prey to false teaching when it comes it doesn't matter what it is whether it's the new perspective on Paul it's not so popular these days prosperity gospel that's rather popular particular teachings about the Holy Spirit those are quite popular they will be stable in the faith they will know the truth and stick with the truth and here we see the importance of going deeper in our faith of really knowing what we believe of being mature I mentioned one of the greatest dangers to the Malaysian church is biblical illiteracy we just do not know the Word of God in detail now, it's not particularly surprising many churches never preach the Old Testament not really sure how it relates to Christ or they just preach the Old Testament legalistically giving us a set of character studies to follow other churches questing for relevance just just end up in pragmatism and so sermons are very practical all these tips with with little biblical basis and Bible study groups become more about sharing than about actually studying the Bible and naturally we find ourselves then drawn to the five steps that will improve our marriage and the ten steps that will grow the church but if we want to to build our marriage if we want to grow the church we need to put in the effort of digging deep into God's Word if we do not dig deep we will remain as children we will be tossed to and fro we'll fall prey to whatever heresy comes we'll be in danger of division we'll be in danger of ungodliness because we don't actually know how God wants us to live and so we all need to to grow to keep growing in the truth and letting that truth changes from within Bible study is not something again just for the pastors to do it's for the whole church to do every member so let me ask then when is the last time that you dug deep into God's Word maybe you borrowed a book from the smack library people set it out faithfully every day although they didn't do it today that's interesting <laughs> maybe they gave up too discouraged borrow a book from the smack library and when is the last time you went to a Tuesday night training course or maybe a seminar how are you going with your personal devotion at home my prayer is that we will know the truth deeper and deeper and will be so transformed by it that we will engage in ministry serving others Well, next point then how do we do ministry point four we the heart of ministry is speaking the truth in love verse 15 says rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ so what will enable us to grow as the body of Christ is as we speak the truth in love now he doesn't just mean any truth here he doesn't mean you know that Southampton is by far the best English Premier League team I know that's a self-evident truth but it's not going to build the church is it I mean, Malaysian food is better than Singaporean food you know you can agree with that one that's not going to build the church is it 
See, the, the, the truth that he's talking about here is the truth about Christ found in the Scriptures. We just look down to verse 21. We read, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Since as we speak the truth of Christ to one another, i.e. the truth of the gospel, that we are going to grow in maturity and unity together. But we'll never be able to speak the truth in love to one another if we don't know the truth. You can only give what you've got. Otherwise, you just speak worldly wisdom to people. And notice, the truth alone is not sufficient. It is we speak the truth in love. The manner in which we speak the truth matters. It's not just about being blatant. Some Christians are like that, isn't it? Just feel they have to, you know, just lay it in your face, what God wants. No, we, we speak the truth in, in love, in relationships of love, where we really care about the other person. It doesn't mean we'll never rebuke them, because that can be the loving thing to do. But it will certainly affect how we do it. See, if we have our doctrine 100% correct, but no love, well, that's quite useless, isn't it? But on the other hand, if you've got all this love but no truth, that's not very helpful either, is it? I mean, it might be all warm and fuzzy, but if I really care for you, then I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, even if it's unpopular. So we must be a, 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 a church that's very careful with the truth, but we also need to be a church that is very careful to love. We speak the truth in love, and as we do that, we grow up into our head, Jesus Christ. So again, let me ask, are we a church that speaks the truth in love? Is there a hunger to learn God's Word? Is there a culture of speaking God's Word to one another? Perhaps we could do that in our Bible study groups. Perhaps we could do that after the church service over lunch or one-to-one. Is there a serious commitment among us to speak God's word to one another and so encourage them in their walk with Christ? Any church that wants to grow must create a culture of speaking the truth in love because that is the heart of ministry. Well, finally, point five, ministry grows the church as each part does its work. Verse 16 from whom Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice here who is the one who ultimately grows the church. Who is it? It's Christ, right? Christ grows the church. After all, he's the one who's gifted the church with its leaders. It's the truth about Christ that transforms us to be like Christ. It's Christ who grows the church. But he grows the church when the whole church does their part. Each part working together, responding to God's word, speaking God's word. Then the body builds itself up. And so throughout these verses, Paul's been using the image of a body to describe the church. Because in a, in a body, uh, all the parts are united. 
At least they're meant to be. I mean, if one part's not united to the rest, you're in big trouble, aren't you? <laughs> See, if your legs don't work, if your arms don't work, then your body's going to be severely paralyzed, isn't it? And yet, in almost any church that you go to, I think ourselves, our church is included, you will find the 80-20 problem. 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and 80% of the people do 20% of the work. In other words, there's a small group of diligent, committed Christians who are struggling hard in serving Christ, while the rest are sitting on the sidelines, spectating. But a, a church can't grow when it's suffering from the 80-20 problem, can it? It will just burn out its leaders. And perhaps that's a problem that we face sometimes here. No, we all have a role to play in building up the body. We all need to play our part. And so God's word would encourage us this morning, if we have been sitting on the sidelines for a while, if we're not actively engaged in serving in ministry, now is the time to start. We need to switch our view from being a consumer who gets from the church to being a gospel partner who gives to the church. Now what part we play is going to be different for every one of us here. For some of us it's going to be formal, for others it will be informal. For some it will be doing lots of things, for others it will be praying. For some it will be in public, for others it will be in private. For some will be evangelists and pastors, others will lead Bible study groups or one-to-one -one ministry or youth or children. Some will be inviting and bringing friends to church uh, and others will be talking to those friends. Some will serve visibly doing the Bible reading and the prayers and leading the service and welcoming. Others will be there in the background. They're organizing the church finances. They're printing the bulletins, they're drawing up the rosters. Some will be caring for people going through difficult times, visiting people in the hospital, comforting the grieving. Others will be showing hospitality, bringing newcomers to their homes. There's, there's many parts to play. Many of us will play multiple parts, but none of us will be the same. But there is a part for everyone to play. And if our church is to be mature and growing, Every part needs to be doing its part. So in conclusion, the way that God will grow his church is to keep the word of God at the center of our gatherings. We need to remember that ministry is first a response to the gospel. We are to remember we have been given peace with God and one another. And so live out that new identity, loving God, serving one another. Uh, we, need to, we need people with word ministry gifts who will teach God's word so that all of us are equipped for ministry. And we need every member eagerly growing in the truth and eagerly speaking the truth in love to others. And as we all do our part, that's what will cause the church to grow. See, there's no magic bullets here. The flashy flyer, the state-of-the-art facility, not even the trendy pastor. It's the Word of God believed, lived, and spoken 
in love. That's what will grow the church. Numerically and in maturity. So that it will be united, stable and mature. Just like Christ. Shall we pray that God will grow his church? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been growing your church across the world, and in particular here in Malaysia, over these last 70 years. Lord, we thank you for the growth that even SMAC has enjoyed since it started 16 years ago. Father, we do pray that you would be continuing to grow your church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond to the gospel and live lives that are worthy of our calling. Lord, we pray that you would please raise up pastors and leaders who can faithfully teach us that we may all use our gifts to serve one another. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know your word deeply and to be able to, to speak it to one another in love. Lord, we pray that you'd help each one of us to use our gifts, to know how important every person is. Lord, we pray that uh, you would bring many more to trust in Jesus, and that you would be growing this church, and, this, and the church in this land, and this world, uh, to be to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.